Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. So you're saying, look, we are committed to driving this impact by whatever means necessary. Like if we are rejected by philanthropists and we can't raise money for it, or if the program doesn't justify our continued existence or any other discovery that we make that's negative, we simply say, look, our vision is too important. We have to really find a new way to get to that outcome. People only want to fund success. And so there's a huge number of people that, that want to pull their funds at the moment when the team has learned the most. Unfortunately, the only things that have high ROI are things that are already proven or very conservative improvements to things that are already proven. I'm very pleased today to introduce Eric Reese. Eric is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and author known for pioneering the lean startup movement. He's the author of the 2011 New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup, how today's entrepreneurs use continuous innovation to create radically successful business. Eric serves on the advisory board of a number of technology startups, is currently an IDEO fellow and entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. He writes the popular entrepreneurship blog, Startup Lessons Learned. Welcome to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs, Eric. I'd like maybe just to begin with to talk a little bit about some of your thinking and innovation in the context of the lean startup particularly vis-a-vis social innovation and how organizations are focused on helping social change so most of the work that people do in most organizations is not very experimental it's mostly execution oriented someone tells you what you make it happen and of course there's still ingenuity and innovation and hard work involved. I don't mean to denigrate it in the slightest. Uh, but it doesn't have the kind of insane uncertainty that true startups have. And so when you're in a situation that we call a, certain, a situation of extreme uncertainty, then the most important thing is to learn what's going to work. That's really our goal. Uh, and so we break it down into two critical, what we call leap of faith assumptions. So if you think of my thesis. Like, I think the world needs this program, you know, more than anything. In order for it to work, what has to be true about the world? You know, like, the classic thing is you have a program. You want to help people, uh, you know, by exposing them to whatever content you have in your program. I'm trying to be generic because it's hard without a specific example. But, uh, you know, one of the leap of faith assumptions, what we call the value hypothesis, one is just, will the people who encounter your program find it valuable? Can you build them, can you drive a specific outcome? And that's something you can test in microscale, right? That's just a question of, all right, you know, before we can have a million people in our program, let's have 10 people in the program and just make sure that it actually works. And then the second part, second leap of, is what we call the growth hypothesis, which is given that you can make it work for some folks, how do you make it work for more? And that's, I think, where social impact ventures often get confused because in the for-profit world, you know, we have a pretty clear that the customer is the person who pays you money. Um, but profit world, that can get confusing. For, for instance, most people think they're a customer of Google because they use Google every day to search the web. But actually, for people who don't pay Google any money, you're the customer, you're the product. Advertisers are the customer of Google, and that creates a lot of interesting uh, compound uh, ecosystem-type challenges for running a business like that. Well, you know, most nonprofits operate the same way. Even the ones that have... Um, uh, but still have some funding from philanthropists, have to start to understand that the people who provide the funding are just as important as customers as the people that you're trying to serve. And in fact, uh, if you have a set of assumptions, something like this, 
Uh, if we build a literacy program and we can help people in our target population become literate, then philanthropists will be willing to fund those outcomes. Then you have really two sets of assumptions. One set of assumptions is about the results that you can drive for the population. So a second set of assumptions about what funding you can drive given those results. And so anyway, the whole idea when we start up is to, to learn to think rigorously about those assumptions and how they impact each other, and then to rapidly test to discover the truth of our theory. And this is, goes back to being experimental and taking a scientific approach. It, it's very dangerous to just assume that you know what's going to work when you're in a situation of high uncertainty. Even if you're an industry veteran, even if you know what's going to work. When you're building something from scratch, it's often different than you expect. So if you're willing to take that idea seriously, then what you want to do is, is create these experiments that we call minimum viable products or MVPs. And you want to do them for every critical that you want to test. And you want to test not just the impact assumptions, like for your target population, you also want to test whatever assumptions you have about business model, revenue streams, and, and foundations. So that's another thing that's been challenging for a lot of uh, lean impact practitioners is really saying, okay, if I have a belief that certain funders are willing to give me money for certain outcomes, how do we test to actually make sure that that's true? Because as people the hard way often discover, a huge amount of philanthropy is driven by perception, by politics, by personal relationships, and let's be honest, has absolutely nothing to do with impact other than it's well-intentioned. That doesn't really help for a new organization. If you're trying something new, different, if it's considered radical, if it's confusing, there's a huge uh, swath of the philanthropy community that's not equipped to to handle reports about something new. They're really only used to funding the things they're used to. And that, you know, if philanthropists listening, I think that's something we could really fix. But that's well, yeah, no, absolutely. And I I have interviewed some folks who were in traditional nonprofit who have you know relying on foundation and, and so forth. Um, move to a more social enterprise model and really this is what it's about. So they're not uh, needing to give information or satisfy their donors when they weren't confident that their donors' objectives were the right ones um, and they felt that the social enterprise model gave them more scope in that way. Because clearly this question of experimentation and, and experimentation I suppose is a word isn't, isn't, isn't a bad word but it comes with failure which is a bad word for many people. So people might say, yes, we, we we're interested in experimentation, but um, by definition, you're, there's going to be some failure there. How well are people doing dealing with funders, I suppose, and, and more broadly, it's, I suppose, it's the ecosystem itself, but really funders in dealing with, in understanding that failure is a necessary part of learning and acquisition of, you know, of valuable information? Oh, just terrible. Absolutely horrible. People only want to fund success. And so there's a huge number of people that, that want to pull their funds at the moment when the team has learned the most, and it's just it's heartbreaking. Uh, and, and to be fair, we see this in the for-profit community too, VCs, and, and for that matter, corporate CFOs all have the same impulse. You want to invest according to the doctrine of maximum ROI. And uh, unfortunately, the only things that have high ROI are things that are already proven or very conservative improvements to things that are already proven. Uh, when you want to see hockey stick-shaped growth, what people forget is that during the long 
part of the hockey stick, it's very difficult to know if anything's happening at all. So expecting there to be high ROI during that time uh, is totally wrong. And as you say, uh, you know, we have to recognize that failure is going to be an inevitable part of learning. And the question is, how can we reward financially who have had a productive failure? That is, how do we unlock more funds for organizations when the failure has been productive? Which, of course, immediately begs the question, well, what is a productive failure? And how do I distinguish that? You know, if I had a funder in the call right now, they would be like, but hold on, with a failed idea, has a very entertaining story about how much they learned through the failure. How can I distinguish people who are really on the brink of a success from people who, you know, are just acting like both of the clown and they, they waste a lot of a lot of people in philanthropy understand that a huge amount of philanthropy dollars are wasted by people who aren't especially serious about solving the problem. So, so it's a hard problem. And in, in kind of the, the broader framework of when you start up, we have answers to those questions. We believe that we have a, a quantitative framework we can use to kind of to provide scientifically valid learning to funders so that they can understand that what we have learned is actually valuable. But, you know, that is considered still very Guard, especially in funding circles. So I wouldn't say that this is something that's extremely widely understood yet. I certainly hope it will be more so in the future. Right. And I think that's also part of the appeal of the more like social enterprise earned income, you know, high model. You, know, you think about something like Kiva, who presented at the Internet Conference last year. Part of the reason that that model works is that there's not just impact, but revenue generated from the actual work itself. Yeah. Uh, and even and cover the full operations of the organization, it creates a kind of a fallback that like even if you have a, a bridge time when philanthropists are having a hard time understanding what you do, you have the revenue from the core operations that's always making, of course, assuming the organization things are going well. But also, it allows you to appeal to a certain set of funders because you kind of have cold, hard facts. The number one most difficult impact metric to fake is you know, revenue because your bank account is either going up Going down, and there's a huge amount of people who will kind of be like, "Well, that's indisputable evidence of success." And I happen to think that they're wrong. I don't think it's the best metric for impact to the record. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. <laughs> there are a large number of people who who think that way, uh, and so it's sometimes unlock funding, you know, that way. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because I think uh, Ian McMillan, who who I interviewed earlier, talked about a kind of cascade. You start off with this model of can we make it a for profit, and then if that's not the case, then you kind of change the thinking a little bit, and then you right down to becoming a not for profit, relying on you know grants and foundations. But there are different steps along the way, and you're testing that at each step to see you know is it, is the revenue going to support you know the operations, or can we make a revenue? You know, are we operating in a you know a segment of the market? where there's never going to be revenues and, and I guess and some organizations balance that don't they they'd have some part of those services they would be selling and another part which they'd be providing to maybe you know lower income where they're, they're unable to do it I think it's quite interesting that kind of hybrid space where people are you know experimenting with different models the cost of experimentation has gone down and so people can try more and more crazy things yes yeah, well, that is an interesting question because we, you mentioned scaling and so forth. And is there some kind of trade-off between experimentation and efficiency of service delivery? I mean, how do you know when to, I guess, stop experimenting that you have a good enough model and trying to maximize the operational side of that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I do think there's this idea out there and a, and a very common perception that experimentation and scaling are at odds. You're kind of either doing experiments or you're doing kind of heads-down execution. Right. And the idea is that heads-down execution is both more 
more efficient and can scale faster than a more experimental approach. Yeah. Some people experimentation is being tentative, kind of that you're not sure what's really going on. Like it has a kind of a connotation, which I think is silly. First of all, there's no evidence. I don't see any evidence anywhere that operational efficiency is improved through ignorance. <laughs> so when you say I want to stop experimenting, you're saying I've already learned everything there is to be learned. Yes. And now I'm repeatedly doing the same things over and over again. And look, yes. there are times and places where the world is stable enough to do the same things over and over again, but I don't know why we hold that up as if that's some kind of ideal. To me, I think a model where you're building an organization for continuous learning and therefore continuous experimentation makes way more sense. Now, within the context of continuous experimentation, as you, like one of the things that we're trying to experiment with is how do we scale efficiently. Yes. So, whereas at the beginning, our assumptions tend to be about just, is this even possible at all? Is there some kind of model we can find that can work here? Uh, as we have success with that, with those answers, we start to get to a case where, like, okay, well, now we can serve hundreds of people at a time. How do we go to thousands of people at a time? We may have to invest in experiments that have more operational efficiency and growth. And that's totally fine. In fact, like if you look at many of the hottest Silicon Valley startups right now, they're focused not only on building a product, they often have a, a whole function of the company dedicated to nothing but growth. Just in growth, that's all it's about. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's considered a best practice now. And, and you know, you rarely see that in, in a social enterprise. I think you will. Uh, more and more. So, so anyway, my model is really about continuous experimentation, continuous learning. I think that makes you much less vulnerable to just making a, tr a catastrophically wrong error because you're always taking the learning mindset into everything that you do. I think it leads to higher quality programs and outcomes because you're uh, much more aligned around making the work you do every day actually is having the intended impact. I think it's really easy for people to lose sight of that, especially yeah. when there's money involved, especially when growth starts to happen. You see these organizations that kind of stray from their mission or they want to wasting a certain you know time on programs that don't. Constant experimentation keeps you focused on that. But the other thing I think is cool about it, it's a lot more fun. Yeah. It's a more fun, more satisfying way to work because I think in, if you ask most people in our economy today this question, when you go into work every day, you know, you earn a living, so congratulations, that makes you one of the fortunate few in our world, but, you know, a growing, a growing slice of the pyramid is able to earn a living every day. But now, here's my question. How do you know, your heart of hearts, how do you know that the work you did today actually matters to anybody but your boss? A shocking percentage of people I ask that question to are either not sure or are pretty sure the answer is no. Either no or I don't know. Probably does someone say, oh yes, I'm quite confident, here's the evidence. Yeah. And I think that's actually really degrading. It saps people's morale over time. It, it, it's kind of, a, I think of it as, as a waste of human potential to have people work where no one's quite sure if it's really valuable or not. Yeah. Uh, so I think the more we have a culture of experimentation, the more we're confident of the resources that are, these are scarce resources, not just money, but people's creativity and time, our most precious resource. Well, that's fascinating because you've confronted exactly that question as to, you know, is there a trade-off really? And I think that's really interesting. The idea or an idea of the learning organization has been around for, in one form or another for some years. But I think you're talking about something different or what would you say is distinctive or is the key issue here? Yeah, I mean, certainly people have had that idea or have advocated for it before, but I feel like what, what has happened, at least in the business community, is that the word learning has become kind of watered down uh, to mean like more close to continuous education or kind of having an open mind, having brainstorming meetings, like very, 
it's not taken especially seriously because, look, most people in business have, you know, at, at some level have a financial objective in mind. They're hard nosed and rigor. Uh, you know, they're looking for financial returns. They're not interested in learning. You can't put learning in your annual report. And you imagine a for-profit company is as well. We had learning as understood in a, through a scientific lens. Scientifically validated learning is one of the most precious commodities that, a, that an organization can have. So to me, it's all about the process by which we that, method, that culture of continuous learning. So it has to do with how do we hold people accountable in the organization. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I, I had a productive failure, I learned something important, how do they prove it to you? What are the, what are the tools that they, that they use? Uh, as leaders of organizations, what kind of tools for uh, experimentation do we provide for our employees? So like, to me, one of the hallmarks of a learning organization is somebody in the organization, whether it's a senior leader or a very junior person, doesn't has an idea for a new program, a new improvement, a new efficiency optimization, a new internal process. Someone says, hey, I think we should revamp our IT system. It doesn't matter what the idea is, but whatever the idea is, the organization has an automatic, non-commercial, non-political process for experimenting to discover if the person is right or not. Right, right. Most organizations, this is done through arguments and politics and discussions. Right, right. But it, I think yes. learning organizations uses empirical testing to find out. Yeah, so it's very interesting because you talk about measuring the impact. I read in an earlier interview saying at an early stage for a profit or for-profit organization, what they should really be measuring is impact as well. And I'm just wondering, because there's a lot of talk, certainly, in the social enterprise community, and there's still a lot more work to be done, I know, in the whole area of, of measuring impact. But arguably, I suppose it is at the core of, of the you know, mission and what social organizations are about. They should be in a good place to, you know, to run with this idea. I would think so. Look, we call, uh, we call Silicon Valley startups unintentional not-for-profit companies. So <laughs> all we're talking about in the world of non-profits are intentional not-for-profit companies. So at least we're clear about that from the beginning. Uh, and, and in all cases, I think having an impact or a mission orientation is critical to the success of any new venture, for-profit or not-for-profit or, or in between. Yes, yes. Yeah, so to me... People who have adopted that explicitly as their goal, I think, should have a huge advantage in adopting these ideas. I think it's not only is it not a liability, I think it's a strength. Yeah, absolutely. How do you bake these ideas in? I mean, the, you know, the entrepreneur character, all the qualities that go into being a good entrepreneur. But clearly one of these is, and for a social entrepreneur, equally is building a culture in an organization and building this kind of, what we call it, the learning culture. I mean, I know the word's been around so much, it's, it's hard to say yeah. exactly what that means. But that seems to be a really crucial element in building a you know a successful organization. What language do you use to talk about that? What lessons have you learned and seen from companies doing this in terms of really, at an early stage of development, a good culture of, of learning? So I think that, first of all, it's important. If you're talking about metrics and analytics and testing and experimentation, people may be confused about whether you seriously. I, mean, I think that's always a risk because the traditional business culture that most people know uh, you know, doesn't test, doesn't experiment, doesn't discover whether things are working. It takes that for granted as considered a sign of visionary leadership. So the first, really make sure you're clear with people that, that the thing that we're experimenting with is our vision. All we want to know is, is the vision right? Does it work? And if the answer that turns out to be no, it's no more of a big deal than if you got in your car, program your GPS with where you wanted to go, and then you discovered that the relevant that was closed, and you had to plot a new route to get to the same destination. So that really, I think the critical language for talking about this is probably Lean Startup's most overused word. It's 
a pivot. A pivot is a change in strategy without a change in strategy. So you're saying, look, we are committed to driving this impact by whatever means necessary. And if we discover that some element of our strategy doesn't work, like if we are rejected by philanthropists and we can't raise money for it, or if the program doesn't work well to justify our continued existence or any other discovery that we make that's negative, we don't give up hope, we don't quit and go home, we simply say, look, our vision is too important. This impact that we believe in is too important for us to, to operate like a faith organization. We have to really find a new way to get to that outcome. And that, to me, uh, is the hallmark of the greatest entrepreneurs. Right, right. And presumably being able to communicate to the ecosystem and the funders that you're en route, that you, know, that you have learned that, it's not, that the whole project isn't collapsed because of this, but that actually, you know, to be able to share bad news, as it were, in a sense that your initial assumptions about bad news, whatever you call it, but it, it, it becomes very important. Exactly right. Excellent. Thank you very much, and I'll be in touch again. And very nice to talk to you, Eric. Uh, my pleasure, and, and good luck to everybody who's listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.